I hope this doesn't seem like an awkward or offensive way to begin a sermon, but I wanted to ask you the question, why are you here? I don't mean that to be rude. If I wanted to be rude, I would say, why are you here? Why are you here? How did you and I end up in this exact place at this exact moment in history? What are the odds? How is it possible? Why and how did you and I end up having this conversation in this very moment? Ever thought about that? Like why you end up in one place instead of all the other possible places? Why you're with this family or this group of friends, why you have this job, you're at this company, this school, instead of another. Have you ever thought of how and why you ended up at a specific time and place in history? Have you ever thought about that before? Let's start processing that together. Why, why are you here? Well, the answer might be, uh, this is my parents' church. My parents are super religious. They take us. Sometimes they drag us to church. So honestly, I wanted to sleep today, but that's, that's why I'm here in this moment. Uh, others of you would say, I just grew up here and you know, I fell in love with this person and they were super passionate about their faith. So they started taking me to church. Then I got connected and then I got interested. That's the reason why I'm here. Uh, some of you are here for a baptism, right? Maybe you weren't here last Sunday. I don't know if you'll be here next Sunday, but in this moment, because you're friends, you're family with these people, that's why you're here. And some of you are watching at home today on TV, uh, on YouTube, on a website. So why are you here? Were you like going through something in life that was kind of difficult and you were searching for something more, something spiritual, something that would last? And maybe you were just flipping through the channels. Maybe a, a friend told you about our church and now just things worked out that you logged on, you found the channel, and you're here with us today. Just I'm looking out at all of you and my brain's processing all the stories of you know, when you first came to this church and I ask you, well, how, how'd you find us? How did you end up here? I know people who just got out of a, out of a 24-year prison sentence that like found our church randomly and were sitting here among us. I know people who really weren't church people until, until things started to fall apart in their life a bit and the anxiety was like super high and, and the marriage was starting to fray and they started to realize, you know, I need something more because the way I'm doing life just isn't working. I know there are people who just like walk by our church and somehow come in. I know there are people who have like super religious coworkers or friends who like keep asking them. So just to, you know, get them off your back, you say, fine, I'll, I'll show up on Sunday. Sometimes it's love, sometimes it's heartache, sometimes it's a baby, sometimes it's a divorce. There's a million different reasons that people end up in this place. So I want, I want you to think about your reason. Why are you here today? Now, as you process what that reason might be, I, I think there are two big categories that you can fall in. You might realize, okay, it was a job, it was a move, it was a friend, it was a relationship. But if you're taking notes in your program, I want you to write this down. The, the two kind of big reasons why that might have happened in your life are this. Some of you think and you believe, number one, that it's just coincidence. It's just random. Like flipping a coin. You, you met this person who went to this church and you didn't meet that person who didn't go to this church. You were flipping through the channels at home and you, for some reason, stopped on this one instead of another one. It's just coincidence. You know, people who believe this say, well, this is just the hand that I was dealt. Which essentially means, like, of all the lives I could have, they were shuffled up 
totally random, and here's the one that I got. That's why I'm here. Or, maybe like me, some of you believe the second answer to that question, which is not coincidence, but providence. So providence is a big, fancy religious word. It was much more popular uh, years and generations ago in American history. Providence essentially means the plan of God. Right? That God had a plan. God had a reason. God's not like the, the dude who made your Apple phone, who just created it and sent it to you, and now it's just you. No, that God actually controls and uses history for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. That it wasn't a coincidence or an accident that you lived here or got that job or went through this difficult thing. That was actually the plan, the providence of God. And we're not going to take a vote today, but I'm just wondering, you know, on a scale, total coincidence and total providence, how do you think about life? Like, yeah, it's mostly coincidence, but maybe sometimes God has a, you know, there's some reason for what I'm going through. Are you kind of here? Are you in the middle? Like, sometimes it, it feels random, but sometimes there's just too many things that line up and you think, no, there's got to be something or someone. Are you one of those super, super, like, biblical religious people that everything is God? You know, the light turned green and when you're trying to cruise down Main Street, it's like, totally God. He knew I was late. <laughs> right? Is it, is it up to stoplights and jobs and people that you work with? Is, is that too religious? Are you way over here? I'm just wondering on the spectrum of coincidence and providence, where are you? Now, I want to play my hand really early in this message to tell you that my goal in today's message is to, is to push you this way. It's to actually get you to believe that what you go through, the good stuff and the bad stuff, is not random. It's not just bad luck. It's not just pointless pain and suffering. That there's a God who is not just love, but he's also power and sovereignty and control. And that God, even when you don't understand him, he has reasons and purposes for all the things he does in our lives. I don't know if I'm going to get you all the way to this extreme, but I'm going to push you one, two, three degrees closer in this direction, and, and here's why. Because people who believe in providence instead of coincidence have two things that the coincidence people do not. They have immense gratitude and they have profound peace. All right, let me say that again. If I can convince you to believe more in providence than in coincidence, what I can offer you, what God can offer you is a bigger sense of gratitude and a more profound sense of peace. Because when good things happen in your life, you know, when you're at a, a great concert, there's amazing live music and you're just like totally into it. And you don't want the, the moment to end. Everyone, everyone's cheering, celebrating, singing together. When you have one of those moments, instead of just saying, huh, what luck, you start to think, oh, this is God. Like God loved me so much, he didn't just forgive my sins 2,000 years ago. He's actually working, orchestrating this very moment so I can have this amazing experience to get this little glimpse of how good it's going to be to be with him in heaven. You, know, you go to a restaurant or you throw some really good food on the grill and you're enjoying that meal. Instead of thinking, huh, wow, this is just a weird total happenstance coincidence that we're eating this meal. No. Instead, like a meal turns into a moment of worship. And you start to process, despite all the things I mess up, 
despite all my flaws as a human being, despite the dumb things that I do, the sins that I commit all the time. God cares so much about me that he gave me my daily bread. He actually provided this meal for my joy. Right? If, if you believe in providence, then every good moment in life is like this trampoline. that like It amps up your gratitude and it, it humbles you and it makes you so grateful that God is so good to a person like you that he would give you so many good and perfect gifts. And... And when life is not good, when you're going through something heartbreaking, when you're, you know, sitting in a hotel room and you're looking at your phone, there's so much like hate and criticism and comparison and you're feeling anxious and you're feeling depressed or you you go through something in your home country and you're an immigrant and you're just, life is difficult or the the relationship is just not happily ever after. You're struggling. You're going to counseling. You're talking about the same thing again and again. You're sitting in a jail cell. You're sitting in a nursing home. When, when life is bad, if you believed in coincidence, you would just say, sucks for me, I guess. Right. Totally random. But if you believe in providence, what do you get to say? God's working through this. Right? Maybe I don't understand why he allowed this. Maybe I don't get why he didn't stop this. But this is not pointless. This has a purpose. If it is true what the Bible says, that in all things God works for the good, then that must apply to this thing. Then the reason I'm in this valley is because God has a purpose. The, the reason I lost my parents when I was still young is because God has some purpose. And I'm not God. And I don't claim to know what that purpose is, but I believe it. Because he's a good God who gave me his one and only son. You see... If I can get you to believe in providence, you can get through breakups, you can get through mental health struggles, you can get through success and failure. Everything can be going well, everything can fall apart. If you stop being a person of coincidence and start becoming a person of providence, the highs are higher and the lows are bearable. Good gets better and the bad won't break your heart. And so today, for the sake of your gratitude, for the sake of your peace, for the sake of your soul. I want to once again open the Bible to the book of Esther, what I think is the most interesting book, maybe, in the whole scriptures, and try to push you in this direction to become a person that I'm trying to get to as well, to become a person who deeply, passionately, and frequently believes in the providence, the plans of God. So, um, quick survey. Who of you are here for the first time in this series today? A bunch of you, I'm guessing. Yeah, dozens of you. Let me do a super quick recap on the book of Esther, just in case you've never read it before. You're not, not going to believe it when I say it. Esther is about the first ever season of The Bachelor. All right, did you know that? There was this kind of sketchy, perverted king. His name was Xerxes. He lived like 480 BC in ancient Iran. He's a real dude. You can find his archaeological records. And he deposed the queen that he loved because she wasn't submitting to him. And he had this big contest, The Bachelor, where he slept with dozens, if not hundreds of women. Yes, this is in the Bible. And he picked one. She happened to be an orphan named Esther, and she became the new queen. Everything was awesome, right? Until the king's right-hand man, his name is Haman. I always picture him like Jafar with a Hitler mustache. All right, he, uh, he's an anti-Semite. He hates Jewish people. And he hates one particular Jewish guy named Mordecai, who just happens to be Esther's cousin. And so he pressures and pushes King Xerxes into putting his stamp of approval on an ancient holocaust. He doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all of the Jewish people so that Jesus can ever come and enter into the world. Right? Everything's falling apart. 
And when we left the story last week, Mordecai was trying to tell her cousin Esther, whose Jewish identity has been a secret, you have to take the risk. Like, you think no one knows you're Jewish and you're going to just be the queen and live happily ever after, but no, 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 no. You have to do what's right. You have to take the risk. You have to approach your husband, the king, even without an invitation, which would cost her her life. That's where Esther chapter 4 ended. She said, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. I'll walk into the presence of the king. Hopefully he doesn't tell the guy with the axe to chop off my head. Hopefully he extends the gold scepter of mercy. Esther's going to try to save her people. And today as we cover chapters 5 and 6, um, you're going to find a whole bunch of things that seem way, way, way too crazy to just be coincidence. Today through the crazy story of Esther, we're going to see God's absolute providence. So if you have a Bible with you or you just want to follow along on the screen, here's Esther chapter 5, the moment she approaches the king. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Oh, Esther is a super, super smart woman. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, have you heard of him before? He wrote lots and lots of history. He talked about King Xerxes, and he said that Greek, uh, King Xerxes was a very, very impulsive man driven by his natural appetites. So what does Esther do? She taps into his impulses. His love of beautiful women and lots of food. <laughs> you catch that? She put on her royal robe. She's making herself up. She's looking beautiful. She steps into his presence. Okay, he's already on her side. What, what do you want? Do you want me to give you money? Do you need time? What? She says, oh, king, if it pleases you, all I want to do is feed you. I've prepared a banquet just for me and you and our friend Haman here. I want you to come to it tomorrow. And Xerxes opens up the Evites, and he RSVPs immediately, yes. He's super into it. He's already on her side. Everything's looking really, really good. Until, until a twist in the plot. Let's keep reading chapter 5. Verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that's Esther's cousin, and observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. I was practicing earlier this week. I don't know how to do Haman's voice, but he's a total, he's a total toolbox. So I don't know how he, how he say it. And, and that's not all. <laughs> I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. I wish I had more time to preach about this verse. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. That's a whole sermon right there, right? You can have so much in life, but if you don't get that one 
saying, it just proves we need something bigger than this life has to offer. All right, verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. A cubit was elbow to fingertips, about 18 inches, so 75 feet tall. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. All right, I know Christians are not supposed to hate people, but don't you hate these people? (laughs) I mean, Haman is petty, and he's proud, and he's arrogant, and he's ego-driven, he's violent, and he's vengeful, and he's racist, and he's wretched, and his wife is even worse. (laughs) Right? Did you catch that? Hey, listen, guys. When you go home and tell your wife about the guy you don't get along with, and she says, you know what? We should skewer him like a shish kebab. (laughs) You got yourself a keeper right there. Don't cross that woman, or or it will cost you. Right? So, like, let's let's murder him. And, oh, yes, this this is a great plan that delights him. But here's the problem. Did you catch the timeline? In the morning have him murdered, and then go to the feast and enjoy yourself. What does that mean? It means that Haman, and Xerxes did everything that Haman wanted, Haman was going to murder Mordecai before Esther had any idea. Right? She was working out her plan, and at the banquet, she was going to point the finger, say, Haman is trying to kill your wife, Xerxes. But before that even happens, Mordecai is going to be skewered on a 75 football. She has no idea. He has no idea. It's just between Xerxes and Haman, and neither of them have this great love for Mordecai. They don't even know who he is. The the plan is falling apart until a coincidence? Mm -mm. Until the sweetest moment of providence. It's my favorite part of the whole book. Ready? Chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. Hmm. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. Come on now, what are the, what are the odds of that? What are the odds that, like, the only night that Mordecai had a chance to be saved that the king could not sleep? And what are the odds that when he couldn't sleep, instead of, like, counting ancient sheep or, you know, getting up early to work, what are the odds that the king would just happen to ask for the monthly meeting minutes of the kingdom to be read to him? And when the attendant brings the big scroll, what are the odds? Do you know that Mordecai's saving of King Xerxes happened five years before this day. What are the odds that he just opens the scroll to the only section that mentions Mordecai? And what are the odds that as the drowsy king is listening, he actually cares enough to say, well, wait, what reward did that man get for saving me? And what are the odds that five years earlier, when Mordecai had done this great thing and foiled the plot, that nothing was given to him which sparked the king's heart? What are the odds? And what are the odds that in the very moment that King Xerxes is thinking, I need 
to delight this man who saved my life, that someone else comes walking into the palace before the rooster crows, first thing in the morning, first thing on the king's agenda, it's, it's Haman. And this is my favorite part. I shouldn't gloat about this, but this is by far my favorite part. You know, Haman's coming in to ask for Mordecai's death. But before he can ask for it, King Xerxes has a question. And the question is, Haman, what do you think the king should do for the man that he delights to honor in? And because Haman is a total tool, what does he think? Well, obviously that's me. <laughs> and so he, he thinks big. He says, oh, king, I have an idea. You should get a royal robe, one that only the king himself has worn, and you should put it on that man. And then you should find a, a royal horse that only the king has ridden, and you should put that man right on the horse. And then you should get a royal servant, someone who's big in the kingdom, and have him lead the parade, walk through with the horse among all the people of the kingdom, and proclaim as he points to that man, this is what happens to the man the king delights to honor him. And Xerxes says, you're so smart, Haman. Get the robe, find the horse, you're leading the parade, because I can't wait to honor Mordecai, the Jew. And Haman's face goes, <laughs> You know, actually, this is such a great moment that many of the greatest, like, artistic masters in history have tried to capture this. Rembrandt tried, Michelangelo tried. Let me show you one uh, picture from history. I, lo I love it. There's Mordecai. He's in the royal robes. He's in the fancy dressed up horse. <laughs> I just love the look in Haman's eyes. He's, he's boiling with embarrassment inside and he's just trying to get through it. And he literally has to parade through the kingdom and say about his worst, worst enemy, this is what happens to the one the king delights to honor. As soon as the parade is over, the Bible says he covers his face he runs home. He gathers all his terrible friends and his terrible wife together. He gushes about what's happened, what the king said about Mordecai, and his, even his wife knows, uh-oh, this is bad. And just when they're wondering what's going to happen to all of them, last verse of chapter 6. While they were still talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried him away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So what happens next? Come back next week as we continue our thrilling ride through the book of Esther. <laughs> I really want to keep reading it so good. Someone's going to die in the next chapter. So just in case you're not an every Sunday church person, you have to come back for that. But I do want to pause here in the story because I want to talk about you. Uh, here's what I take away from this story that just is corroborated by a thousand passages in the Bible. Write this down. That because God is powerful and God is in control and God is sovereign, he wants us to believe that there is no coincidence, just providence. The, the king not sleeping, the meeting minutes of the kingdom just happening to be on that entry, that, that was not coincidence. That was God quietly working like a ninja to carry out his grand plan for the good of his people. I hope that you can start to believe that simple phrase, there is no coincidence, just providence. Let me picture it like this. I have these oversized uh, dominoes up here. 
There's about a 42% chance this isn't going to work. All right, so just stick with me. But when I ask you, you know, why are you here in church today? Why are you watching at home today? You know, maybe here's you. And maybe your answer was that. Right, it was the... It was the move, it was the job, it was the relationship, it was the baptism, it was the breakup, it was the transfer, it was you, you lost your job and you ended up back with mom and dad. All right, here's the, the reason why you physically ended up in church today. But if I asked you, well, why did that happen? Why the job? Why, why the struggle? Well, you'd think back and you'd give me this answer. He didn't want to be married anymore, or COVID messed up the company, or COVID expanded the company and I got the job. You know, you'd have these reasons. And if I asked you, well, why did that happen? You'd think back and you'd give me that. And if I asked you, well, why did that happen? You'd think back and you'd give me that. And if we went back in the history of your story and in your family and tried to figure out how we got to this moment, there's two things you could say. You could say, coincidence. Or, you could believe that there is a God who, for reasons that often only he knows, he, he, he sets in motion a sequence of events because he cares about not just the moments, but where the moments lead. He has a grand plan, and as Job found out, that plan is beyond our understanding. Sometimes we grasp it, but most of the time we don't. That God actually sets history in motion because he wants us in certain moments. And, and I'm not just saying that as some like hallmark, feel good, oh, my life has purpose, this isn't pointless. Um, I'm actually saying that because of a passage I found in Acts 17. Have you heard this one before? How about this? The Apostle Paul is speaking to some intellectual philosophers in the Greek city of Athens. And in chapter 17, he says this, the God who made the world marked out their appointed times in history, and so when people would live, and that same God marked out the boundaries of their lands, so where they would live. And why did God do that? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though God is not far from any one of us. That's the Bible's answer to that question. Why are you here? At this time, in this land, in this place. Well, Paul said, the God who made the world marked that out for you so that you would seek him. Not everyone does it. Perhaps you'd reach out for him and you would find him. That God actually cares and, and loves you so much. He wants to give you something better than family, better than friendship, better than food, and better than fame. God doesn't want you to live your life only getting joy out of temporary things that are here today and gone tomorrow. God doesn't want you like riding high and then sitting in, in a hotel room like wondering why you're so depressed in your heart. God wants to give you something so big. He wants to give you himself that he orchestrates the where and the when so that you would have a chance to reach out and find him. So let me teach you before I say amen how to put that into practice. Right, I, I want to teach you to think about providence during the good times 
during the bad times, and especially during the gospel times. All right, let me wrap up with the good, the bad, and the gospel. The next time something good happens to you, and I would bet it will happen within the hour, I want you to think, God, every good and perfect gift is from above. Like, the people at my work, they don't all know me. The people on my block, half of them don't even know my name. But the God who should be busy running the universe actually cared so much about me, he gave me this. My family and I, my girls are sitting in the front row over there. We, we love to think about this when a great song comes on the radio. Right? And you think, well, what are the odds? Right? Our, like our, our jam came on. Like the, for us, for Kim and me, it's like 90s hip-hop. Um, my girls got their own thing. And that comes on and you think, oh, like God. Sorry, I just said God loves 90s hip-hop. I'm not sure if that's theologically correct. <laughs> right? But like these, these good moments and you could just think, wow, that was just some random DJ putting a random song on the radio. But what if, what if there is a, a father in heaven who loves our whole family more than I love those girls? And just like I love to bring happiness into their life, what if, what if it's possible that God is even a better dad than I am? And he's working out history and everything to show his love, to shower it upon us. What if every good thing you go through is God trying to say, I love you. I see you. I've forgotten about you. Come on. How many good meals do you have? How many funny friends do you have? How many good songs are there on the radio? How many opportunities is God giving you to like cement this relationship and believe he is not just here, but he is so infinitely good? The next time something good happens, say this. This is God. This is not coincidence. This is providence. God marked out the time and place so that I would experience his glory and love him even more. But number two, not every moment of life is like that. Sometimes your song doesn't come on the radio. There's nothing on the radio. And sometimes you're not laughing with friends. Sometimes you have a falling out with friends. Sometimes you're riding high, but it feels like more often life is, eh, if not, eh. In those moments, maybe more than any moments, I, I hope that you believe in providence. Now, really quickly, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God wants people to hurt you or sin against you. Right? God hates sin. And so if someone abused you, that wasn't like God pulling the levers because he wanted you to get hurt. If, if someone betrayed you or bailed on your marriage or your mom and dad didn't, didn't work, that's not God doing that. That's sinful human choice. But here, I do want you to know that even through the mess that we humans create, God is at work. Right? He doesn't like, he doesn't bail because things are getting too messy. Do you know the famous psalm? It's one of the most famous songs in human history, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are, you're with me. King David, who went through all kinds of drama, believed, even if I'm in the valley, even if I'm struggling with my own mental headspace, and I just wish God would rid me of this, even if I've been through war, even if I have struggled in life, like God is going to turn that mess into a ministry. God is going to turn this brokenness into a blessing. God takes what the enemy meant for evil and flips it. He turns it for good. I will tell you what, there are people 
who got through the Holocaust because they had hope. There are people who come out stronger and better people after tragedy because they believe this wasn't just random. There are people sitting here today who have been through more than any of you can understand, and yet they praise God because they believe there was a purpose. There was a reason. So if you want your suffering to be pointless, have fun with coincidence. But I'm going to stand with King David and say, no, 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 this is providence. This is a God who promised in Romans 8, verse 8, in all things, God works for the good. And so the next time good things come, you say, this was God. And the next time bad things come, you say, but, but still God. God's got this. He's got me. And one day I'll see. Finally, number three, the gospel. Uh, I think that's actually Paul's point in Acts 17, the God who marked out the times and boundaries. God did this so that people would seek him. Did you know that the most important thing about God, it's not the music, it's not the food, it's not the friends. The most important thing about God is the forgiveness he offers through Jesus. It's like the bread and butter, most important thing you need to know about the Christian faith is that we don't believe in karma. We don't believe in balancing the scales. You know, I did some bad stuff, so I'm going to give to charity and I'm going to be a good person. No. We actually believe that the only way to make it to a better place and to be with the best person you can even imagine is not through our efforts, our works, our character, our improvement. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Some of you have a little experience with religion. Some of you have a lot. And maybe that religion was all like, do, don't, rules, earn it, be good, and God will love you. If you're bad, he won't. I'm going to tell you today, and maybe you're here for the single sentence, that ain't God. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he didn't bring a ladder and hand it to humans and say, good luck, love your neighbor, forgive people, don't lust, you better not steal, give to the poor, hope it goes well for you, be perfect, God's perfect. Now what Jesus did is he talked about that ladder and he said, you're not going to get there, are you? Let me give you another way. And he took the wood of that ladder and he refashioned it and he turned it into that. A place where there would be forgiveness every single time. A place where you and I could have a relationship that we wouldn't blow up with our own mistakes. A place when we feel criticized or forgotten or unloved. There is just God pouring out grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. There is a God who actually loves people unconditionally. And when we open our hands and let go of control of our lives, the Bible calls this repentance, and, and we use those empty hands to just grab onto Jesus, we get everything that our souls crave and desire. We get God now, tomorrow, and forever. So, I don't know your story. It might seem like a coincidence that you're here, or maybe God marked out this time and this place so that you would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him because he is not far from any one of us.
Now, once upon a time, there was an ancient rabbi who only owned four things. A scroll of the Bible, a lamp, a rooster, and a donkey. And that poor rabbi was traveling, and after a long day of walking, he saw a small village, and he went inside to look for a place to stay, but the inhospitable villagers rejected him. And so he took his scroll, his lamp, his rooster, and his donkey. There was a nearby forest. He, he tied up the donkey. He got the rooster in a safe place. He found a tree. He leaned up against it. He lit his lamp, and he unrolled his scroll to read the Bible and remind himself of the, of the providence of God. Except just when he started reading the scriptures, guess what happened? A wind swept through the forest, and his lamp fizzled up. And the old rabbi said, Everything that God does, God does well. And then he felt the first raindrop on his head. And his lamp was soaked, and he couldn't relight it to read his scriptures. He tried to protect his ancient scrolls, and as the, the rain soaked his entire body, chilled him down to the bones, he said, but everything that God does, God does well. Then while he was starting to sleep, something started him awake. Some wild animals from the forest had found out his rooster was nearby. They had snuck up stealthily. They grabbed the rooster in their jaws and they raced off into the forest and now his rooster was gone. And though he was tempted to say otherwise, the old rabbi reminded himself, but everything that God does, God does well. Finally, God gave him the gift of sleep. He passed out. But while he was sleeping, a group of unsavory men who were wandering by the edge of the forest saw this random donkey tied up. And since they were not the best people near the village, they untied the donkey and they stole it. They took it for himself. And so when the rabbi woke up, the rooster was gone and the donkey was gone and the lamp was soaked and the scrolls that he had were near his heart. But those scrolls reminded him, even now, everything that God does, God does well. Well, the tired, soaked rabbi wandered back into the village when the sun came up and that's when he understood. It turns out the village that he was attempting to stay in had been at war with a neighboring village. And during that night, some warriors from the other village had invaded and killed as many people as they could find in their homes and their beds. If they had given him a place to sleep, the rabbi would have. And as those villagers who were trying to eliminate any potential threat and enemy would have seen the light of his lamp out in the forest, they would have gone into the forest and... And if his rooster would have crowed just a single time, giving away his location, those warriors would have come in and... And if the donkey would have brayed when he saw the enemies and given away the location of the rabbi, he might have. And so the old rabbi left the village, scroll tucked under his arm, and he repeated what he said in the good times and the bad, the best and the worst. Everything that God does, God does well. So, why are you here? Coincidence? Providence? I hope you know and choose what the rabbi did. Let's pray. Uh, God, we live in a world that forgets you. Uh, sometimes it hates you and rejects you, but most of the time it just forgets you. But if we forget you, God, we don't have you. 
to make those good moments even better, to make the, the worst moments bearable. So today we're trying to remember you. We're trying to remember that you are a God who controls and knows all things. You are a God who holds the universe and our lives in the palms of your hands. God, help us to believe that. Help us to cling with everything in our souls to that ancient verse that, that the Apostle Paul wrote, in all things, you work for the good. Heavenly Father, we want to know that you're not just a God who cares about us but can't do anything. Neither are you a God who can do everything but doesn't care about us. You are the perfect combination of power and love, and you proved it through the death of your son. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful we're here today. Uh, there's a lot of us who needed to hear this. <laughs> we need to remember just how intimately involved you are day-to-day, moment-to-moment, second-by-second, because you are a good, good father. So today, we lift up your name. We try to find gratitude for the good. We try to find peace in the midst of the bad. And we know that one day, just like that rabbi, we will understand the grand plan you have for us. Until then, help us to seek Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to make your word the center of our life, the sun around which everything revolves. And God, at the end of all things, help us to one day see what we believe in this moment, that you are good and your love endures forever. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.